the first see the first question I see is from someone who calls themselves Jonic Manifold, um, which is a most interesting way to identify yourself. I see that you are here today. Hello. We call you John for sure, Jonic. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, doesn't have to. Okay. Well, we'll begin with your question here. <clears throat> I have a question about the subjective value of enlightenment. In a blog post, Shenzhen Young says, if I was given the choice of living one more day, experiencing life the way I experience it, or living 20 more years as a wealthy, healthy, celebrity, sexual athlete, beloved by everyone, but not uh, experiencing what I experience vis-a-vis -vis enlightenment, the decision would be a no-brainer. I'll take the one day of enlightened living. Would you agree with this? And more generally, is there any amount of material success that would subjectively seem better than even one hour of enlightened living? Uh, such comparisons seem enormously helpful for me to generate motivation to meditate. Well, and uh, certainly these, this was a very, very powerful statement that uh, Shinzen made and very inspiring, but also uh, I can see where it could uh, be reacted to with doubt. <laughs> So, um, you know, uh, if, if the 20 years that uh, you're asking, uh, part, part of your question was, uh, um, would you, would I agree with this? <laughs> and just, just to be clear that, um, well, uh, if if I if if I chose uh, the, the the second pill to live 20, 20 more years, uh, as, uh, now that one <clears throat> uh, I qualify that and say, well, it depends. If if uh, I were to uh, if if I were to retain the knowledge and sources of guidance and things like that so that uh, within the next year or so of my 20 years that I could uh, uh, achieve a state the same state of awakening then uh, it, it would be worth it for the next 18 years not not for the reasons that mostly for the sake of having 18 years to keep on doing the work of somebody who is awakened. Um, so in a way, I'm, uh, I'm agreeing with Shenzhen. If it were cut and dry, 20, 20 years as a wealthy, healthy, celebrity, sexual athlete, beloved by everyone, but not experiencing what I experience, well, that 20 years is going to turn into a mire of, uh, of suffering and conflicts, and uh, it's doubtful uh, that uh, you know, beloved by everyone because, uh, you know, I, yeah, it would be the same old mess. And uh, 
and who would want it? So I agree. Um, and it is very inspiring. Yes. So please be inspired by it. Is, is there more that you'd like to elaborate on for that or is that a satisfactory? Uh, especially, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really difficult to, it, it's really difficult to compare what it's like to be awakened and what it's like to be unawakened. And uh, from that kind of subjective perspective uh, of, of choice, because um, the way that you look at things when you're looking at them from a worldly perspective, um, you're going to you're going to see and misinterpret what's being offered so much. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I wouldn't suggest that somebody try to imagine what the difference is, because what you would probably imagine is something that was somehow uh, a super version of the same kind of pleasure seeking and pain avoiding uh, behavior that uh, uh, everyone is is engaged in anyway and trying to see their way through so uh, yeah thank you All right. let's go on to the next question here Daniel Kerpershoek don't know if I pronounced that name correctly but is he is Daniel here by any chance seems not um, so we can come back to that question um, well actually um, maybe we won't come back to this just it's very long and um, Okay. Hey, it's me again, Daniel. I sent a question a few months ago about my heart rate suddenly increasing to such an extent that it felt like dying after a kind of insight experience. This happened again, but in a deeper way than before. I'm writing this question as I'm having my monthly two-day retreat. I am at stage seven. So the meditation session started very sharp. I assume that mean clear enough. And soon after I entered a jhana, around 30-40 minutes later, suddenly I felt as though my senses were dissolving, but it happened consciously, as I suddenly felt this happening. Everything didn't dissolve all at once, but it was more of a slow dissolving that seemed like rapid movement. Existence seemed rapid. Very quickly my senses disappeared. Even my sense of being in the body vanished. As this happened, a strange sensation of spinning around very fast became the one thing I felt, as if I was sitting on a wheel that, was, that someone was turning very fast. But the strangest thing was that I had no feeling as if my body was spinning, just as if I were spinning without the body. Um, not long after this happened, maybe a minute or so, or even less after the experience started, again, my heart felt as if it was beating out of my chest and I was about to die if I gave in. I wanted to give in fully, but somewhere it was still blocking me from doing so. 
The strangest thing was I felt sort of at peace, just my heart was going like crazy, but I didn't feel as if I was panicking. The only non-happy feeling I felt was not fully giving in to, if, if that makes sense. This entire experience lasted, I think, 10 to 13 minutes or so. Um, and he gives some times on his timer that uh, add up to 13. I'm writing this the day after the experience. Somehow my mind woke me up after three hours of sleep <laughs> with heart palpitations that have been active but decreasing during the day. Um, this is kind of a continuation of my previous question for several days now. Been having heart palpitations that sometimes make it impossible to sleep. I also felt nauseous and even noticed my stool has turned yellow, a sign of stress or anxiety. I decided today, since it's been three days, that I, okay, my question is, is this normal and is this the result of an insight not being fully accepted by some sub-minds, perhaps? Also, have you seen this kind of experience with any of your other students? Well, I absolutely have not seen this kind of thing with any of my other students, and I would be quite concerned if I had. Uh, is this normal? It is absolutely not normal. Is it the result of an insight not being fully accepted by some subminds, perhaps? I, I am pretty certain it is not. Usually that manifests as sort of a feeling of anxiety, restlessness, uh, discomfort, um, not as anything such as you have described here. Um, nausea and uh, yellow stool, well, everybody will occasionally have a pale stool. That means nothing. But if it happens repeatedly or consistently, uh, it's usually a, a sign of liver and gallbladder disease, and the nausea goes along with it. I would definitely go see a physician about this, unless this is just a one-time event and it doesn't recur. If it recurs again, I would go see my physician. I would highly suggest that um, you seek the assistance of a, first of all, a cardiologist, um, but perhaps also a sleep specialist. What you describe is pretty classical description of what it's like to enter into uh, deep hypoxia and hypercapnia. What this means is that you're not breathing enough to maintain your oxygen levels and your carbon dioxide levels are rising at the same time. Um, high to make a guess, this happened after 34, 30 to 40 minutes in a deep jhana uh, without you here to ask you the questions, but I would speculate that what you had was, uh, uh, wh whatever the nature of your deep jhana, it may have triggered an, uh, a, what's called a sleep apnea event. Uh, I have sleep apnea myself. And that's uh, where you, in certain states, your body just, the breathing apparatus stops working. And it sounds to me like you were, most people are asleep when this happens. It sounds like you had a waking episode of probably to do with the jhana uh, triggering uh, apnea. You were not breathing. That causes a very heart rate, high heart rate, and it causes a heart rate to persist. My diagnosis of sleep apnea came because I had sustained high heart rate. Uh, so what they will do for you is the same thing they did for me. They'll attach something that monitors both your respiration and your heart 
and uh, and you'll wear it anywhere from a weekend to uh, two weeks. And as a result of that, they'll be able to tell you what's happening. And my doctor said my heart rate was 160 for five hours straight. I said, well, doctor, maybe I was having a really good dream. He says, not for five hours you weren't. Uh, and as it turned out, I had sleep apnea. I think you need to get that looked into. Um, various things that you have described about uh, difficulty sleeping and your heart racing very rapidly. Of course, your heart races rapidly when you don't uh, when you don't have adequate respiration. So, all in all, I would not attribute any of this as a meditation experience. I would highly suggest that you see a fully qualified physician, including at the very least a cardiologist and your primary care physician to discuss everything else and let them take it from there. So I hope this is helpful to you. Um, so yeah, the, but it's no, it's not normal. I've not seen it before. Uh, the closest I've seen to it is, is in uh, states of, uh, different things you mentioned, uh, as essentially disease states. Is Bert Elsie here today? Hey, okay, good. All right. Ooh, what happened here? Oh, there we go. Okay. You see, I've been meditating for almost four years now, and for the last year and a half, I have a terrible problem with tension and resulting pain in the muscles of my face. As my stability to tension improves, the tension increases. Even doing walking meditation, when my attention on my feet gets more exclusive, my face will tighten up. My skill level has decreased significantly over hundreds of hours of daily one and a half hour sits. Now they can only seem to keep the tension at bay by backing off of effort so much that I'm barely keeping the sensation at my nose and the periphery. Every time I get to around stage five, the tension and pain set in and I have to drop back to stage two. Um, just a clear point of clarification, if you don't mind, when you say you have to drop back to stage two, does that mean you intentionally allow mind wandering to start occurring? If you're answering, I can't hear you because you're muted. How's that? That's good. Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, instead of concentrating on my sensation exclusively, basically I concentrated on my breath on my nose a little bit mm -hmm. until it starts to hurt, and then I back off and either concentrate on my breathing at my chest or with the whole body or I attempt to try to release the tension and so mm -hmm. every time I or or try to relax specifically um, and so I, I never my, my I'm not able to hold attention like I used to mm -hmm. about three years ago I could go an hour and lose attention at the breath for maybe two or three seconds twice in the whole session and now mm -hmm. if I Get exclusive, kind of get exclusive attention to my breath for four or five breaths. This tension starts building, and I have to back off and put attention kind of over my whole body to try to release the tension. Mm -hmm. It seems like 
yeah. when I have to keep trying to not be tense. And when I stop trying to not be tense, I get tense. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm, I'm wondering, one of the first things that comes to mind, I haven't read the entirety of your question just now, but I did read it previously. One of the things that comes to mind is some degree of efforting or striving, perhaps even in a way that uh, your mind has disguised so that you're not necessarily recognizing it as such. Because it is very common for when there is some degree of striving to feel tension, uh, often muscles of the forehead, the eyes, uh, you know, there's, there's variations in where you can feel it. Sometimes feel it, people will feel it much more in their shoulders and neck, things like that. But it is a physical manifestation of making a, a excessive mental effort and striving. So that's one of the first things that comes to mind. And so I was just simply, you know, and also you're saying that when you back off, when you, you, you know, that, 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 that's the other thing that kind of makes me wonder about this because then you're not trying so hard. So in, uh, let's go back to that extended period where you had very stable attention on the breath. Um, did you have any sense of striving associated with that? I think so. I think it, I think you're exactly right. It has a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, when I was making very, very good progress in stage three and four, that when I started going into, uh, dullness, I -hmm. think I would try to, I I think, uh, changing my nose, tensing my nose, pursing my nostrils would bring the sensation and so I think I conditioned myself to, when I was losing sensation, I would tense up to try to gain, regain the sensation, yes. I believe. Okay. So, uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if this doesn't reflect a personality tendency of yours as well. So, what I would suggest that you do is... Um, Find, it doesn't matter, Go, you know, just start over at stage two or whatever, uh, where there isn't tension, and see if you can just follow the instructions, but in a very relaxed way, so that you're not worried about, you know, if, if, you're, if you start forgetting, if mind-watering starts happening, you respond to it according to the instructions, but the main thing is keeping in this space where all I'm doing is holding the intention to follow the instructions and then follow the instructions. And it's very simple. The instructions are simple and straightforward. There's very little room for striving. And so as far as the meditation goes, do it from that place. And the other thing is just also intend to be alert to any physical striving or mental tension or physical tension, mental striving or physical tension that you may detect. And um, look for the joy. When you, you know, uh, even though you have a history where with some, some striving, 
you were able to achieve a very stable attention. Let go of all that. You're starting all over and you're training, letting the mind train itself to do this rather than having this sort of making it happen. Okay. Great. So, great. That really, that really helps. And that is uh, really enjoyable with the things that I've found that do help. And I wish I would have talked to you way a lot sooner. Uh, well, an interesting thing, though, is that I, uh, I think I have a neurological issue of, uh, I think I read about it, um, uh, primitive reflex retention in that. Mm -hmm. And it really messes up my um, neurological issue. I mean, I, I never crawled as a child. Um, my handwriting, I can't not grasp the pen so hard that I write well. Um, just my mm. fine motor skills are terrible. But I think that my meditation has helped everything by trying to, using the meditation uh, to overcome my current problem. I think it's overcoming a lot of the physical, neurological issues that I've had all my life. Well, that's, that, is, that is wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, so in addition to what we've already talked about, you might, uh, I assume you have a neurologist who monitors this condition or uh, perhaps you could... I'm trying to find one. Yeah, okay. You could just, just for the sake of seeing if they have any suggestions for, uh, you know, they may not, the context of meditating may not mean anything to them in particular, but you can tell them that you can explain what happens when you meditate and they may have some suggestions that to, to, to help with that. But um, uh, you seem to be able to deal with this condition. You've learned to deal with it. So I would hope that uh, I certainly wish you the greatest luck with uh, dealing with this uh, condition in the context of meditation. Thank but, you. Yeah. Um, and you say, you know, don't, don't feel like going back and starting over is really going back and starting over because you have, you have trained your minds in a lot of ways, but uh, you did it, uh, you may have done it in, in, uh, uh, from the place of striving and efforting, and none of that's lost. But you need to learn a new way of being. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Glad I could be of assistance. All right. And uh, Anne, um, oh, I'm glad to hear you that you enjoyed the retreat. And it was a it was a great retreat, I think. It was. Um, <laughs> is, is, is Anne here? Wow, That's, it's, a, it's a short question. So Anne, I may be hearing it on a recording. Uh, do you think chanting and mantras are a good adjunct to meditation? I had a strong spiritual experience with chanting years ago, so I find myself drawn to it. But as a level three, four TMI meditator, I wonder if time for spiritual practice is better spent on getting down to the nuts and bolts of meditation. Well, and I agree. It's a very it, it is a very good adjunct to meditation, but I wouldn't reduce the meditation practice time 
I, I would truly use it as an, uh, an adjunct. It has um, one thing about chanting, and even more so when you're chanting in groups, is that, um, you know, it, when people hear the term no self or not self, they either can't imagine what it would be like or they imagine something that is uh, that's like a loss of something. Um, people experience this, the sense of self and, and self-identification through ego. Uh, but people have experiences where that's not present. Uh, it, it's not unusual, but they don't recognize it. You, you know, uh, you're so used to thinking of yourself in terms of a, of this self that when it's not there, you don't even really notice its uh, its absence. Often, when chanting, you will have just exactly that. You will. You'll just become so engrossed in the chanting that the sense of a self that's doing it disappears. This is a characteristic of flow states, so therefore it's also a characteristic of jhana. Um, and um, so, and related to that, when when you are chanting in a group, you can have an experience not only of no self, but which uh, the counterpart insight into uh, um, the interconnectedness of any, everything. It teaches samupada. And uh, you might, your body, no, not your, your mind might not react to that as, a, uh, as an insight experience. But you have, say you had a strong spiritual experience with chanting years ago, and I just, as a speculation, say you probably had some kind of experience of, of no self and interconnectedness, um, which is a, a powerfully moving kind of spiritual experience to have. But doing the practice, uh, it, it's great to, to do chanting as an adjunct and then to recognize that the falling away of the sense of self and how unnecessary it is and how non-traumatic it is. It's actually pleasant to have it fall away. Um, if you can see the experience in group chanting as being an experience of interconnectedness associated with the loss of sense of separation, then that makes it an even more wonderful adjunct to meditation, but I would not reduce my meditation time. First of all, you're at stage three, four, you're getting into the area where you're really training your mind to be a powerful instrument for seeing things as they really are. And uh, chanting might induce a temporary state by which you can appreciate what it is that you're going after. But what you're going after is seeing that Self is just a, a, a construct of the mind. It, it was utilitarian for, uh, for our predecessors in evolution, 
but it actually causes us more trouble than it, it's worth. And it's not real. It's something that the mind creates for practical purposes to help keep you alive and reproduce and things like that. Um, so it can fall away. But you, it only falls away as a result of having the kinds of experiences uh, that um, demonstrate um, the whole spectrum of insight. And that comes together to allow you to have this persistent insight that even the feelings of self that continue, uh, you know, don't represent something real. So, and likewise with uh, um, the sense of interconnectedness. Uh, I mean, you can examine things intellectually and you'll realize that while well, everything is totally interconnected and the degree of separation that we see uh, as a part of our, our conditioned uh, worldview is an illusion. But what, all of these things, there are all of the five insights that I've described in TMI are really come together as a single major shift in, in perspective. And that is not a state. It results in, in an on, ongoing shift in perception that alters the way that you respond to events that happen to you and in the world and in your behavior uh, as well. And it's worth far more than the uh, temporary states that can be induced with chanting. So do it as a, do that as an adjunct. Do that to see if you can have those those glimpses into uh, insight. You know, it might might include more than just uh, no self and and interconnectedness, but do it entirely as an adjunct, not as a substitute for meditation. We're not after states here. We're after permanent shifts in uh, our perception and behavior that, that result in the kinds of statements that uh, Shinzen, that we quoted from Shinzen Young earlier. Hope that helps. Um, Adam, Adam here. Okay. Um, could I have a show of hands of people who have questions here? I know William Wallen does. Tom? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, let's, let's look at your questions first, and I'll come back to see if there's anybody else. So, um, uh, William, and then I'll come to... to Tom. Um, William asks, hoping your health is continually improving. Well, it's holding steady. So uh, uh, that's, uh, I don't know, that's an improvement in itself. <laughs> I have an impression that a big part of improving concentrated meditation has to do with one's ability to relax moment by moment without inviting dullness to the experience. Yeah, that's a very good way of describing it. So, uh, and it relates very much to what we were talking about uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, 
So how does surrendering to the experience or to the situation affect one's ability to go into deeper stages of meditation? Are there certain stages of meditation where surrender plays a more important role compared to others? Can we only surrender to experiences which are perceived as negative but not enjoyable ones? So let's take these. Now, first of all, the term surrender uh, belongs to a group of terms that are useful. Um, they are all pointing to the same thing, uh, but there's differences in the way different people interpret those terms and the kind of meanings that they ascribe to them. But um, the other members of this, this family would be acceptance. Surrendering, you can see surrendering and acceptance are similar things. Um, letting go. Uh, another one is let it let it come, let it be, let it go. Um, not resisting, and re that's really what acceptance means. So these are all pointing to the same thing, as I say. Uh, to let's begin with in the earliest stages of meditation, there's ac acceptance becomes really important. And because it's important, and because you experience the fruits of it, then uh, to some degree, acceptance is going to uh, become much more natural, a much more natural response to what happens in your meditation. We start out in the beginning just accepting that we're not in control of our own minds, um, accepting that we're going to forget and uh, have mind wandering for some unknown number of times, but if you uh, just are diligent in uh, responding to these as, uh, as recommended, that uh, they will be overcome. And the non-acceptance, the resistance, is going to create all kinds of problems. It's going to create disappointment, so on and so forth. Disappointment resistance to practicing, uh, doubt, whereas acceptance allows you to uh, let those go. Um, later on, uh, I, acceptance is always going to be an important part of it. Later on, you can see it more in terms of a letting go and a uh, I let letting go of something or letting something be is not a kind of doing, it's a kind of non-doing. So uh, it's a bit of a skill and the terms surrender and acceptance are helpful to just kind of get an idea of, of how this is a non-doing rather than a, a doing of uh, of letting go of things that um, come up, letting go of hopes and expectations, letting go of resistances and things like this. Now where surrender really becomes valuable as a term is that surrender carries within it, I think more of the sense of an agent, of somebody who is doing this than uh, either letting go 
or acceptance. Um, in both letting go and acceptance, where the you know the sense of an agent is present, but we're sort of setting it aside. And in terms of surrendering, um, it's the surrender is really letting go of uh, letting go of the sense of being an agent who can somehow do something about these things. Um, it's also um, an acceptance that your mind will tend to uh, generate the uh, the sense of need for the self to do something. And so you're actually directly overcoming that. You're accepting that, that, okay, yeah, there's a, there may be a sense of uh, a, a self, an agent in here, but, uh, and, and that may be what's responsible for the, the clinging or the grasping or the resistance and non-acceptance. But now you're giving, you know, Surrender to me means just giving up the whole package, just letting go of, of the whole thing. So are there certain stages where surrender plays a more important role compared to others? And of course, uh, a lot of this is when you get into the, uh, the area of insight, when you get into the depth stages of the practice described in TMI, um, this this is the this is where insight tends to arise, and surrendering to uh, what is can be very very powerful in allowing insight to occur, where insight has occurred, allowing the uh, you know, I mean, you've been, what we were just talking about with the earlier stages is that you've been you've been practicing learning that there isn't really somebody in control. That uh, the closest thing that the sense of you can do is to form and hold intentions. So you've been learning that all the way along, and now here you're you're really uh, bringing that to a kind of culmination. So. Uh, whatever insight experiences that you do have, whatever insights that arise, uh, they are going to uh, eventually lead to uh, confronting the issue of the reality of the self and the tendency to cling to it. And there is, that's where the term surrender, I think, can be really, really useful if you understand it in the same way I do. And I think, some people might find uh, find this a, a difficult word to to deal with, but uh, they might they they could find some other counterpart. Uh, you say, can we only surrender to experiences which are perceived as negative but not enjoyable ones? No, as a matter of fact, that has a lot to do with that quote from Shinzen Young earlier. If you surrender to negative experiences, then you don't resist them; they just kind of pass pass through you or over you or whatever. Uh, the main point is they, they, they just kind of pass and they have minimal impact. If you surrender to an enjoyable experience, then what happens is that you enjoy it as completely as, you, uh, as your mind is capable of. 
So you're just simply open to it as it is. You'd enjoy it more than you would if you didn't surrender to it. Because if you didn't surrender to it, what you would be doing is part of your mind would be recognizing that it's not going to last and try to cling to it or think about how it can be re-experienced or uh, worrying about the fact that it's going to be lost eventually or suffering because it's, uh, you know, anyway. So when you surrender to positive and negative experiences, it has kind of opposite effects. You can fully enjoy what is pleasurable without any attachment. As soon as some attachment develops, you can, it, it's palpable how the degree to which you can fully experience it declines. Uh, same thing with an unpleasant experience. As soon as you begin to cling to it, you feel the dukkha associated with that increasing in severity. And uh, actually when the Buddha gave instructions on the second noble truth uh, in uh, one of the renderings of that, he basically suggested to the bhikkhus that he was speaking to is that you try this, you know, he was talking in terms of unpleasant and that, uh, that you can try this. Uh, anytime you're experiencing strong unpleasantness or pain, just simply surrender to it and you'll see that most of the suffering associated with it goes away. Um, and so, yeah. When you suffer, when you surrender to uh, unpleasant experiences, you don't add the mind-generated suffering of resistance to them. And they, uh, you know, it's, some people falsely believe that, uh, that an awakened person doesn't feel pain, and that's not true. They feel both pleasure and pain. The Buddha reiterated this a number of times, but people still misunderstand. But the response to the pain is totally different, and it doesn't generate uh, a mental suffering, the second arrow that the Buddha speaks of in one of the suttas. The other thing is that uh, most of human suffering has nothing to do with physical pain anyway. It's generated by our mind, it's generated by our clinging, grasping, craving natures, um, and driven by the sense of self. When you, when you experience pleasant things as a worldling, just as when you experience unpleasant things, you generate that second arrow of suffering. When, as a worldling, you experience pleasant things, you, you create a lot of... Uh, craving in association with it and craving is basically suffering so you mute the enjoyment and you you interfere with the enjoyment that would be a natural part of a pleasant experience if you surrender to it then there's nothing there so so you just you experience it exactly as it is no more no less and no clinging and it comes and it goes, and it was a good thing, and uh, it's gone, so what? So, yeah. Uh, did uh, I know with you sometimes there's a dimension or a depth to a question that I don't necessarily pick on, a pick up on when I start 
addressing it. So I, I'd like to ask you if there is such a thing to this question that I missed the point of. Actually, uh, the the uh, the origin of the question, in part, comes from uh, uh, a number of the practices that I'm doing during doing the finders course now, uh, mm -hmm. where where surrender also seems to uh, fit in with the um, like the headless way and and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it also arises from uh, my old study with Goenka where we would uh, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And mm -hmm. I always thought that there was, uh, at least part of that, was sort of um, uh, involved a surrendering to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Uh, maybe uh, in terms of uh, knowing that I don't know what's going on, or admitting admitting that I don't know what's going on, and and sort of uh, generating that kind of faith mm -hmm. uh, to um, be able to continue working on the path. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, <clears throat> it's uh, it's just like in the twelve step program and surrendering to uh, a higher power. Um, Except that in this case, and actually I suggested this to people who have trouble with the 12-step program because they don't believe in a higher power, is that uh, you, what you're really surrendering to when you, with the Buddha, when you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, uh, is that you know, to take refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in the fact that uh, there have been many instances of people who have overcome ignorance and delusion and achieved awakening and all the benefits that are associated with that through their own efforts. And therefore, it's something that uh, you can do as well. To the extent that we make Buddha into some super special uh, being that is only because of thousands of lifetimes of uh, 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 making all this good karma that he became a Buddha, we sort of short-circuit his whole message. The fact that what he was really trying to say <laughs> is that uh, you can become awakened um, through, through practicing the Dharma. And here I'm giving you the Dharma. It's a method. It works. People who practice it are successful, just as I was. And, of course, the Sangha is... The Sangha means the that greater power that comes from having a community, having teachers, having spiritual friends, kalyanamitas. Uh, and uh, that it's also the beyond the supportive aspect of, of Sangha, it's, it's also a reinforcement of the, the uh, faith and confidence in the Dharma and in the possibility of awakening because uh, there are these other people, some of whom achieved some, some level or another of awakening, if not uh, arhat. So uh, depending on how you look at it, some regard the Sangha as only those who have been awakened. Others regard the Sangha as only the monks. Uh, others regard the Sangha as everyone who seriously undertakes to practice the Dharma, 
according to the Buddha's teaching. The latter is how I see the Sangha. So yes, this is a greater power. And surrendering to a greater power has been proven over and over again. And the 12-step program is just one case in which it can be beneficial to you in changing your life, your attitudes, uh, and uh, make it easier to stay clean if you're a substance abuser, and it makes it easier for you to follow the path of awakening if that's uh, what you're doing. So does that that you more close to it? Everything you've said has been excellent. And um, it just sort of reinforces and helps uh, generate more confidence, more energy, more uh, indria. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Glad to hear it. Thank that's, you. That's the desired result. <laughs> yes. Okay, and Tom, is this uh, Thomas Bernardi's? Okay. Or is this a different Tom? I don't, the, you, it's the only Tom question I see, so. I uh, I'm that. a different Tom. Oh, you're a different Tom. Okay, let me see if I can find I, your question. Well, I don't think it's there. I tried to put it in earlier today, but I don't see it now. Oh, Oh, well, that's too bad. Is it clear enough in your mind that you could succinctly state it for us? Yes. Is there a reason for shifting to the abdomen before beginning the body scan in stage five? I have on occasion gone straight into the body scan from attention on the breath at the nostrils. Is this problematic in some way? No, absolutely not. It's not problematic at all. Um, for... Some people, it's really helpful. You're used to watching the uh, sensations of the breath at the nose. There are very obvious sensations at the abdomen. Uh, likewise, there are fairly obvious sensations in the chest associated with breathing. And there can be in your upper arm, especially if your upper arm is in contact with your chest. These muscles in here will sometimes contract during uh, during inspiration and then relax. Sometimes you can feel that. So really there's only two reasons for going to the abdomen or perhaps even beyond that then to the chest and the upper arms before you go elsewhere. Now, one is less difficult to achieve and uh, there may be no necessity at all to go to any other areas for this. And that's just simply to have the cyclic process of the breath clearly in your awareness uh, when you start doing the body scan. And I would think that most people, by the time they reach stage five, have more than enough awareness to sustain that. Uh, the other reason which is just kind of uh, easing you into looking for um, breath sensations in parts of the body where you haven't been used to looking at them before, would be the, to go to the abdomen and maybe go to the chest, shoulders, upper arms, uh, before going somewhere else, just to, because these are places where if you look closely enough, 
there's usually enough mechanical movement and actual sensory stimulation of the kind that we're used to that you can detect those sensations right away. And then somebody might go from there to their hand or their foot or the top of their head. And at least they have a sense now of what it's like to find a breath sensation, breath-related sensation somewhere. So that's the only other purpose that it really serves. And there's absolutely nothing wrong if you can go right into body scan from, from the nose, which I think at some point everyone does. Probably maybe should have uh, been a minor point of clarification that uh, if I didn't put in, I should have, is that at some point this won't be necessary and you can just go directly into the body scan. But no problem. No need to worry about That's it. That's reassuring. Thank you. Yeah. You're quite welcome. So is there anyone else who has a posted question that's here today? I, Gabrielle. Oh, yes. I remember yours. Let's go to that one. Oops. What happened here? Okay. Um, okay. You, you ask, how intense can the shift in the brain after insight be on our personality, tastes, hobbies, considering how they were before it? Are things dropped out of the blue or is the process continuous throughout our periods of mindfulness? Um, and then the second question, let me deal with them one at a time. Um, it is most definitely the case that there are going to be shifts in all of these domains. Um, with, with insight, with the development of insight, with stream entry, and then this continues to be the case even more so with transition to second path, third path, etc. Um, personality, what we call personality is a set of predispositions to certain kinds of behavior, responses, reactions that uh, we all have that uh, kind of, the, they kind of identify us uh, as, as a particular person because we have different preferences than someone else, different ways of understanding and seeing things, different ways of behaving and responding. Uh, these also change over time. Now, if you're the kind of person who uh, was prone to uh, more unwholesome reactions to things, say you are temperamental or lost your temper eat more easily and things like that, you'll see major changes in this. The more your perspective on yourself and your world and your relationship to it, the more these kinds of reactions just, there's no place for them anymore. No, they just, they, they so obviously don't serve you or anyone else in any way. They're so obviously unwholesome, uh, they are so obviously dukkha that they fall away. Now, there may be other personality quirks and things like that that are not seen through the lens of, of this shift in perspective. And for those 
Um, it seems to be the case that they're more likely to become exaggerated. I'm not sure why this is. The first time I came across reference to this was a study done a long time ago by Bill Hamilton and Ken Wilbur. If you can imagine those two working together. And they were, they were interviewing a, a group of people who were purported to be arhats and um, high-level uh, bodhisattvas and, and so forth, uh, the high-boomy high bodhisattvas. And um, what they found is that personality quirks were uh, magnified enormously in these people and that they were tended to be described as highly eccentric. And I've seen that myself and in myself, that, that there is a, a tendency for those kinds of personality quirks to be exaggerated. But those that through the, through the lens of uh, insight are clearly uh, conducive to suffering, yours or someone else, and therefore unwholesome in those ways, they will tend to change. And sometimes the change can be fairly abrupt but it can also be very, uh, very gradual. Uh, your tastes, your preferences. One of the things that people go through even before they experience insight, uh, as, they, as they become experienced meditators, their values change and things like that. Um, things that they used to like to do, like sitting around with a bunch of friends, gossiping about everybody else you knew, and you just find it totally distasteful, or, or you find it, you know, maybe uh, uh, watching sports every, you know, uh, spending a lot of time watching, watching sports on TV or watching soap operas or television dramas or things like that. You see, you start to see that as, as not a good use of your time, the content of which is not necessarily um, beneficial to you, so on and so forth. So these things will shift and change, and it will affect your relationships. And basically what usually happens is that uh, you might continue to, um, sorry, let me turn this off. You'll continue to maintain relationships with people that you care deeply about, your family, close friends, long-term friends and things like that. But the kinds of activities that you're inclined to share with them will shift and perhaps out of, out of for, sake, for, the, for the sake of the relationship, you might spend some time that doing things that you no longer consider to be of value. But you, there's a definite shift away from that, which is uh, unwholesome in any sense, including a waste of time, or something that is not necessarily conducive to the kinds of mind states that you're trying to cultivate. Um, I hope that answers your question, uh, that first question. So, yeah. I don't know if you'd like to give me a, a yes or no signal or say something. something. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, it helps very much. And could I also add something? Uh, 
you said about anxiety and restlessness on uh, on the question about heart rate. Could you? Uh, I don't know how to say that in English. I'm sorry, but could you explain that again? Um, I was talking about that in the context of the question was some parts of your mind system are resisting the rising of insight, and it it's. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's like a non-specific anxiety, a vague sense of something being wrong, or, or uh, you know, uh, and it usually it, it works its way out. It doesn't usually last very long if you if your mind is properly prepared for it. Um, now what can happen as a result of insight, now we're kind of going back to that other question and looking at the new thing that you, you brought up. Well, no, but this may be related to what we, we your first question as well. Um, when insight arises but hasn't been assimilated and when all of the insights collectively haven't matured to a sufficient degree, this is where you might encounter the resistance. The greatest resistance you're going to encounter is those parts of your mind system that are uh, harboring the behavioral and emotional consequences of various traumas in the past or various uh, uh, conflicts in, uh, in, in belief, okay? Both kinds of things create a kind of inner conflict. They tend to be, they tend to reflect the circumstances under which they arose, which were, you know, often very much involved with self-clinging, craving, suffering, uh, aversion, so on and so forth. And um, if those, if you have not purified those from your psyche prior to the state of these insights trying to become assimilated by your mind, because you're, these insights are contradicting the way you've always seen things. And so this part of your mind that's been causing you to react in, an, an, you know, a, in a particular unwholesome way for most of your life because of uh, some trauma or series of traumas or something like that, you know, uh, that is going to be triggered to create a lot of resistance. And this is what we see, you know, the, we, we get some people talking, uh, they've uh, inappropriately usurped the term dark night from John of the Cross to describe these unpleasant, very unpleasant experiences associated with the process of insight trying to be assimilated and it triggers all that to come up. And so if you can imagine having all of your lifetime accumulated neurosis trying to uh, come to the surface and be resolved at the same time. Uh, yeah, it would make for a pretty dark night. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that, but that's a different issue really than, than what we were talking about before. Let's look at the second part of your question. Is having the insight something evident? How can one make sure that their mind has deeply understood them? Uh, okay, 
they what happens is you'll have an inside experience and uh, it will be very meaningful. Uh, how long it, it it may shift you to a completely different state of perceiving, okay, that corresponds to that insight. Um, but remember, it has to mature, it has to, the other insights have to be brought up, they need to be, they need to undergo a process of, of maturation, integration with each other, and assimilation into the mind. So, what what you will have in the form of insight experiences is a profound uh, understanding of the insights at something than uh, deeper than just an intellectual level. It'll be powerfully experiential, but it won't usually last. So there's practices you can do to reinforce that. Like if you've really seen something clearly, and then what you can do from that point on is uh, try to see things from the vantage that you have, uh, of insight that you saw it during that experience. And this can aid and assist the process. But as insight develops, yes, you, you, you recognize it. You can recognize it from the descriptions. You might not recognize it if you had never heard uh, insights identified or never heard them explained. They could be confusing and so on and so forth. But it's a, it's a profound shift in perspective. You know that something, you, you know something that you didn't know before. You understand things in a way that you didn't know before. Now, what you don't want to do is confuse a, an experience, whether it lasts for an hour or whether it lasts for days, you don't want to confuse that temporary experience with the culmination of the insight to make a permanent shift in the way that you perceive things. Once this occurs, it is absolutely obvious and unmistakable. And you know, you're, you're seeing things in a very different way. Now, it is curious that with some people this happens gradually enough that they can't even say exactly when, when say, the shift in perspective from pre-stream entry to post-stream entry took place. So it can happen gradually. Or it, or it can happen suddenly. It can be associated with a cessation or something like that. Here's another place that people get misled. They'll have some kind of experience, like a cessation experience. They'll have read and heard about that, and they'll say, oh, I had a cessation experience. I must be a stream mentor. Well, cessation experiences are, while they're associated with uh, stream entry and other path attainments, um, they also happen and result in no significant shift at all. So. Uh, Cessation experiences, uh, you, you know, uh, pure consciousness experiences, uh, consciousness without an object. They're just like, you know, experiences of no self, experiences of interconnectedness with everything, experience of everything is flowing and changing. Yeah, they, they carry various aspects of um, awakening and, and insight with them. But... Uh, 
something like a cessation experience is almost more of a, it's a particular way of insights coming together, but it's not by no means not the only way. So not all cessations result in any awakening or path attainment, uh, nor is a cessation necessary for awakening or path attainment or any other thing that somebody, any other event that somebody may describe can happen in a lot of different ways. But um, the, when you see things differently than you did before, sooner or later it becomes very evident. In the, you know, I made reference to people who can't point to when that shift changed, but they realize it when someday when they, it just dawns on them that they are not responding and reacting to things the same way that everybody else is, and nor is it the same way that they used to. So you do become aware of it, and it's very clear and it's very obvious. If it's not very clear and very obvious, it means it was a temporary experience and it probably has passed away. And unless you can recall it and see see things through that truth again, you kind of just have to wait until um, till the next time something like that happens. So, yeah. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Anyone else have a question that's positive today? Okay, well, let's go back and answer some of the others here. Um, all right, yeah, there's a couple of questions related to each other that I look at here. I had a deep insight. This is Adam Kritzer's question here. <clears throat> I had a deep insight experience many years ago. As it has matured, I felt an increasing ambivalence toward meditation. It's less that my mind is actively resisting it and more that it just doesn't see any how it will help cultivate further insight. I can see how it might help refine my concentration skills, but that is a different story. In listening to your previous lectures, Q&A sessions, I've come to understand that at a certain point, you seem to advocate that one must increasingly be out in the world rather than in a cave. To me, this implies that the effectiveness and therefore the importance of formal meditation must diminish at a certain point on spiritual path, namely after one gains dream entry. Can you please comment on this? Yes, Adam, I, this is um, a very unfortunate misunderstanding of what I'm saying here. Formal meditation, the value and importance of formal meditation is not diminished uh, in in the return to the marketplace. Um, that, that's not at all what I'm applying. I'm, I'm saying that meditating in isolation, you reach a certain point where you have, you have learned, you have grown, you have made as much progress on your personal spiritual path as you can in isolation. Now you need to go into the world to continue that. And continuing your formal meditation practice as a part of that is very, uh, it, it's very important. So that's not at all what I was suggesting. Um, as for your personal experience, <clears throat> I don't really have any details about the 
deep inside experience that you had, and you say it has matured, you say you felt an increasing ambivalence toward meditation. Well, uh, it's awfully hard with you not here to, to deconstruct exactly what you're trying to get at. You say mind isn't resisting it, it's just that you don't see the value or importance of it anymore. Now, I don't know if this is relevant at all, but the thing that comes to my mind, first of all, when I hear something like this, is uh, people react differently to stream entry, but I've had a very difficult life, and everything in my life was so much better following stream entry that a bit as you described, it's like, wow, you know, um, I could hardly even recognize that things could be better than, this was so much better than before. How much better could they be? And it was actually a fruitful period because I, I explored a lot of other things. I explored shamanism very deeply. Um, my practice became very sporadic and uh, long gaps in it. But sure enough, uh, that, that kind of afterglow it wore off. I became aware of how much suffering there was, still was, how much self-clinging, all these other things. And I went back to meditation as appropriate. Um, so I don't know if your situation is something similar to that. Um, some people have just the opposite uh, experience, that if they, once they've achieved stream entry, it's like, wow, and this is just the beginning? Boy, and then they, you know, they're they're willing to change their whole lives so they can practice as much as as intensely as possible, and you know they can't wait to see what the next path is like and the one after and the one after. But uh, it is absolutely not the case that well, okay. Once again, I was going to say it's not the case that your meditation practice becomes at all irrelevant to this because it continues to be extremely important to your progress through the subsequent paths to go from being a stream entry to be being second path um, you know any of these things can happen without formal practice but they're rare 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 uh, formal practice makes is, is what makes these things happen with a high level of certainty but you, a lot of it may depend on the kind of meditation that you were doing before. Not all meditation practices uh, develop the same mental capacities to the same degree. And if we keep in mind that uh, awakening to stream entry uh, can happen even in, in people that don't, do the sort of mental training that that uh, uh, is meditation, and uh, that sometimes they have insights and achieve the equivalent of stream entry without meditation. It's possible for you to do to have done a form of meditation that hasn't developed the requisite capacities to a sufficient degree. So it may be that that particular meditation is, doesn't really have much to offer you. 
but uh, meditation includes a lot of different things. So um, I'm assuming that because you are uh, asking on this forum that you're at least familiar with the mind illuminated. And that has been constructed uh, as, as a path that allows you to develop powerful mindfulness, uh, samadhi, and powerful vipassana. And these are, these are the mental capacities that you need to progress through the higher paths. Uh, another thing that it develops is uh, uh, a level of conscious power that you will need as you go along. So, um, yeah, if you are familiar with TMI, I would certainly recommend continuing with those practices. And I think as, the, as those skills develop, uh, you'll see a shift. You'll, you'll be able to understand uh, the importance and value of meditation and the cultivation of the skills and then those meditation techniques that are designed to... Uh, bring you face-to-face -face with exactly those aspects of ignorance and delusion that you need to overcome sequentially in order to achieve the, the uh, highest state of awakening. So I hope that, I hope that helps you. Um, yeah, meditation you were doing, maybe you can find something better. But meditation, a good meditation practice, is going to be necessary and of value bottom line Andy Guyen asks can you discuss the influence of diet and particularly ketogenic diet and or intermittent fasting and in improving one's ability to meditate especially for someone who is early on in the stages well um, Andy I've been doing a ketogenic diet as part of the treatment for my cancer. And one thing I do notice about it is it increases the level of your mental energy, and that is, of course, a benefit in meditation. Um, I'm kind of becoming a strong proponent for uh, uh, ketogenic diets, and so your question tempts me to recommend to meditators uh, that it has all kinds of other health benefits and everything else as well. So, hey, hey, why don't you give it a try? Um, but uh, what I can say is it, it does increase the energy level of your mind. And you will notice that difference and it will be helpful. So I'll just leave it at that. So here's this question from Jean-Luca. And it is very similar to... Uh, uh, Adam's question that we were just talking about. So Jean-Luc says, can you talk about the lack of motivation for formal sitting meditation, even after many insights? Absolutely has improved my life. I actually see more and more when I compare myself to other people, superior, equal, or inferior, and I succeed more and more in seeing this comparison as suffering, unstable, and empty of self. And this has lesson and continue to lessen my stress immensely and has opened many doors for compassion with others that feels more connected and natural. I find very easy to let go of gross suffering. It is like an automatic process. Well, you're making some nice progress. Um, 
but you say, still, I've almost lost my motivation to meditate and concentrate the mind. I always thought I was not skilled at concentration, but before the insights, my mind was really calm and workable. So I have that potential when my mind finds something pleasurable or useful. I rationally know that the mind was better than the one that I have now. I still have a lot of desire for sense pleasure, but I don't feel motivated to use effort to get there. Um, well, <clears throat> you are experiencing the benefits of the meditation that you've done and perhaps are continuing to do. Uh, it just seems that you may not be seeing clearly the connection between them. And that's the area that I would recommend that you work on. Um, the specific, like, the, of the mental capacities, the one that would reveal this to you most clearly and would also probably uh, uh, help most in your continued um, spiritual development is what we call cognitive perspective awareness or sati sampajana, uh, mindfulness with clear comprehension. Um, this would allow you to understand more clearly what the things that you've gained, what role the things that you've gained in your meditation play in the, the uh, changes that you're experiencing where you uh, see things as suffering, unstable and empty of self, uh, and so forth. It's not even clear to me in, from this whether you've had insights that have matured into stream entry or perhaps you're just uh, uh, enjoying a clearer understanding that is helpful in your life. But if you do the kinds of meditation that develop uh, the attention, the ability to use, to stabilize attention, first of all, at samadhi, to use it in a penetrating way, to examine, to investigate, to observe everything that's going on in your life. And if you have a well-developed uh, mindfulness that will take this information and uh, recognize that from, from the penetrating quality of, of attention called vipassana, to take that information and it will deepen your insights and it will integrate your insights and take you to new levels of understanding. So please don't abandon your meditation practice. Uh, you say you read in the Majjhima Nikaya that the Buddha says, sensual pleasures give little gratification and much suffering and distress, and they're all the more full of drawbacks. Even though a noble disciple so what he's talking about a worldling uh, here, sensual pleasures, uh, they, don't, they, they always disappoint us in terms of the amount of satisfaction we get. And they inevitably involve and lead to, both before and after the fact, uh, much suffering and distress. That's what he's saying here, and other drawbacks as well. So a noble disciple has clearly seen this with right wisdom. So long as they don't achieve the rapture and bliss that are apart from sensual pleasure and unskillful qualities, or something even more peaceful than that, they might still return to sensual pleasures. So what he's talking about here is, uh, he's, 
this is a noble disciple, but he's one that hasn't uh, hasn't developed very far along the path. So he's probably talking about a stream entrant here. And a stream entrant can be drawn back to uh, sensual pleasures and unskillful behaviors. Uh, there's a limit to the degree of that, but it's still, it's the fact of it. And that's the reason that, you know, it's only the beginning of, uh, of the four paths. And for that matter, the fourth path is a path too. It's not, it's not an end in itself. So he's been very specific here. But when they do achieve that rapture or bliss or something more peaceful than that, they will not return to sensual pleasures. A rapture he's talking about is piti. And that powerful experience of realizing that joy, a much greater joy than that comes than that which comes from uh, from the world and from worldly things, is come can come from within. And the happiness that accompanies the joy, the, the piti, the, the piti and sukha, the joy and happiness that come, that can be generated by the mind. And one even recognizes that the joy and happiness that one has experienced on the basis of sensual pleasures is really still, it, it's not inherent in those things. It is, it is a reaction of the mind to them. So when somebody discovers that uh, piti and sukha or something more peaceful and sublime than that, which we might call the, the bliss of mental pliancy, uh, the higher blisses that are associated, well, uh, here's a pointer to the bliss that we're talking about. Have you ever been in a state where you just you absolutely wanted, needed nothing at all? Everything was just totally perfect in the moment. I mean, just, you know, and that's, that's the kind of sublime bliss that is actually, you think about it, you recall an experience like that, and compare that to a pleasurable activity. The pleasurable activity is, is all agitated and noisy uh, compared to that sublime bliss of just wanting and needing nothing, everything being totally perfect. Uh, that's the kind of difference. So the Buddha is just pointing out here in this thing, and I think it might be very relevant to you, is that, uh, that it's through the discovery of the true nature of both the both the happiness and unhappiness that we experience, that they, they're generated by our minds. They're not inherent in the things of the world. The, and the, it's the, your practice will bring you to the experiences that make that obvious. So when I say, please don't abandon your practice, please continue it so that you can have that experience of piti and sukha, that you can go beyond that to the tranquility and equanimity that, uh, that, Samatha alone with those qualities is going to bring you to uh, a place that where you're, you're not going to become entrapped by uh, sensual things. Even if you aren't a stream enterer, you're, you're far less likely than a stream enterer who hasn't. This is what the Buddha is saying here, is he's saying even the noble disciple has clearly seen this with right wisdom, so long as they don't achieve Piti and sukha and the uh, uh, that are apart from sensual pleasures and unskillful qualities, or something even more peaceful than that, which is tranquility and equanimity. Samatha alone is going to 
uh, help bring you beyond or the ten the the tendency to uh, descend back into the realm of sensual pleasures. So, so practice. So do that. Train your mind. Have those experiences. Learn the lesson that you have to teach you. So what do I have to do? Build more faith in the Buddha's response or Buddha's promise? Yeah, that's what you do. Develop the intention to stay more and more in open awareness and try to feel pleasure in it. That sounds like a good idea to go along with uh, the meditation practices. You know, try to when you say open awareness, I translate that to powerful mindness. Uh, open awareness in your daily life is powerful mindfulness. And yes, do do notice the pleasure in it. Our minds tend to be spontaneously negatively oriented because that's a that's a great survival trick to be born with a mind that's going to you're going to always be looking out for the negative and the unpleasant. But hey, it's not much fun. Uh, you may live longer that way, but you won't have as much fun living that way. So you don't need to do that. As a human being in modern society, you don't need to be looking at the negative all the time. So by all means, find the pleasure. Find the joy. Should you work for the jhanas? Um, sure. Absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, so you're in Italy, and that's why you're not here. So I hope you find this helpful. I hope everyone that listens to this finds this helpful. So it's a, a wonderful quote that you pulled up to, for us to discuss, because it's it's pointing to something that uh, is is very important, very real, very much a part of the path. Um, it's one thirty, I think. I think there's probably only two questions that I didn't get to this time. Michelle's question, um, which is a good question. I look forward to dealing with that maybe in a catch-up session sometime soon. Uh, and then there's um, Vincent's question. <laughs> From your point of view, what would happen if the universe, to the universe, if all beings would stop clinging at once definitely? Uh, if every being was enlightened? That's an interesting thing for us to talk about. But the first thing that would happen is mass confusion everywhere. Um, the t economy would totally crash um, because, uh, you know, all of this advertising uh, is intended to make us crave things that we don't need and buy them and everything else would all fall apart. <laughs> but if everybody was enlightened, I think that they would fairly soon sort things out and maybe uh, 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 much, much more wonderful society would uh, arise, uh, arise out of the shambles. Uh, but the first thing that would happen is everything would fall apart. <laughs> yeah, the economy would crash and it would take uh, a whole lot of people uh, shifting into a state of maximal compassion and uh, uh, using their uh, intellectual and technical and every other ability to make sure that people didn't starve and die of disease and everything else once, once the basis for our 
not so healthy uh, cultural structure disappeared. <laughs> so anyway, that just leaves one question unanswered and, uh, uh, and, and interesting, great topic for a Saturday night discussion with a group of friends. What would happen if every became, everyone became enlightened? Consumerism disappeared totally. Yeah, what would happen? <laughs> okay, well, it's a great session. Uh, from my point of view, I guess I mean I had a lot of fun uh, answering your questions. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and look forward to the next time we get together on this. Um, as a matter of fact, with only one question left over, we probably don't need a follow-up Q and A. We'll just uh, uh, schedule the next one, and we'll 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 do that one question as a as a catch-up at the beginning. Okay. So until then, uh, may you all be well, be happy, be free from ill will, be free from suffering, be filled with loving kindness, and uh, see you in a few weeks, sometime soon, okay?